Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series by the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. My name is Marissa Knodel, a research assistant at the center, and I'm in the studio today with writer, activist, attorney, Julian Agins for the first half of a two-part podcast. Julian's work centers around human and indigenous rights under international law, with an emphasis in the rights of non-self-governing and indigenous peoples. Julian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So you describe yourself as a hybrid writer, activist, and attorney. So I'm curious about how you balance and navigate these uh, different multiple identities and how they inform one another in your work. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think about that question a lot, actually, especially when I come to institutions like like Yale Law School and they ask me me to provide a bio, basically. I've spent a lot of time realizing that it's pretty futile trying to figure out which one is the most important identity because they all for many years have like vied for pride of place in my life mm-hmm. the writer the activist the attorney but i'm now just you could say leaning into a new comfort level with regard to all of those identities and i'm feeling more integrated of late um my even my law practice i do almost as much writing in my law office as i do lawyering and mm-hmm. thinking about my cases so so it's um so I'm, I'm now comfortable with those identities. I think they're all very much a part of what I do. I would never actually set out to go to law school with sort of an agenda to make tons of money or be a corporate lawyer or, or even a specific law like environmental law or um, anything, anything you can imagine. But I did come um, to law school with the idea that I wanted another tool in my toolkit. And that's all I sort of viewed it as. So it was really helpful for me because it eliminated sort of the need um, that, I don't know, attends law students, especially in their 1L year going into school. It's almost like a law school can too easily become a church packed with pews, filled with believers. I mean, the law, like the legal experience, it's it's very merciless in some ways. But a lot of times, like there is an expectation that you come to law school to be formed. But I also think it's really, really useful for fully formed human beings to come to law school. I mean, people are very clear about their sort of what side of humanity they think they're on, like what what fight they're fighting. And, and so they basically gather those skills, you know, you forge for those skills and you get them and you learn them and you hopefully master them and you just launch them in the service of your own private enterprise. And mine has always been the pursuit of understanding. So I don't really know if it's necessarily if I set out to be the best lawyer, I just set out to understand how law works and to be able to think like a lawyer because it's very useful on the ground in activism, in the movement, in campaigns for decolonization, for demilitarism, um, for what and whatever else you want, the struggles against global corporate, you know, predatory capitalism. It's a skill set that's useful in every single room, basically. No matter what room of the building you're in, law will be useful. So, I mean, that's the sort of attitude I went into law school with. And um, naturally, of course, over time, I developed a sort of niche area, international law, uh, there under indigenous and human rights, um, as well as 
international ocean law because those things were most relevant to me as a Pacific Islands lawyer um, from Guam. I'm from Guam and um, the surrounding Micronesian islands, um, the Republic of the Marshall Islands, the Republic of Palau, the Federated States of Micronesia, and the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. All of these islands make up what once comprised the former UN Trust territory of the Pacific Islands. And I, I do work frequently around the region. And I just thought that those areas of law obviously have particular importance to the people and islands where I come from. So, I mean, that was a natural evolution. And, and now I'm home and I continue to do um, sort of all of it, a little bit of writing and a little bit of activism, a little bit of lawyering. Um, Wow, I found myself nodding a lot with what you said because I identify with a lot of that being a dual JD, but also a mm. uh, master's student interested in issues of environmental social justice. And one thing you said that I really identify with is that, and a phrase I've used as well, is that law is a tool in a toolbox. And one of the best uses for that is it teaches you a particular way of, of thinking and of using words, which is something that I think a lot of people in the arts and who write have in common with lawyers. How you interpret and use words matters. And words can be very powerful. We have to be conscious of how they're used and say precisely what we mean. Um, and so my question is, how do you articulate complex, abstract concepts such as the right to exist, which is something that if some people on South Pacific Island nations are permanently displaced will have to address. How do you define concepts like justice? <laughs> I'm just realizing how hard that question is. It actually is a, it's, it's a, I don't know, terribly tall order of a question, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, good on you. Um, but I think for me, um, it, it's helpful often, I found, to explain the nature of law and how as an institution so often it seeks to maximize order and predictability. Mm. And I think that's a very useful point for people who are lay people who are non-lawyers because oftentimes that's what I was talking about a little bit about that deference, about that reverence about that sort of cloak of worship that people sort of don as a garment sometimes when it comes mm -hmm. to law, because it is such a powerful tool. Um, they, they, you look to law um, for justice, and I think that's the first misstep. I, th I mean, not because you can't get legal victories um, and you can't use legal process to pursue very um, just causes and to fight injustice and try to produce... Um, to win judgments, for example, but but because the two are not necessarily related, and I think it's too off, too taken for granted that they are law and justice, law and morality. Um, I mean, I think you can see that now. I mean, I mean, we've seen that in history. You know, so many times, very very immoral, very very unjust things are legal. I mean, we, we there's like countless examples, even in the history of this country, slavery being legal. I mean, there. I mean, I I, I it actually is sort of. It's probably not even good to go into any of the examples because there's just too many examples in this country and others where it's very clear to anyone with an intuition that law is not necessarily justice. So that's it's helpful to start with people who perhaps, in my opinion anyway, um, sort of miscalculate that at the from the outset they they look at legal process and the law to find justice so what what's helpful for me to make this more specific is to allow them to sort of understand that and then transition into how law presently 
endeavors to accommodate stories of harm, for example, like the climate change debate or the nuclear testing in the Marshall Islands. That's, I've been writing this in some law articles and explaining to them how the law as an institution, it doesn't always, it's, it's, it's very often ill-equipped to actually remedy the harm that they're actually articulating. So we see this with U.S. federal Indian law. We see this with U.S. Territor- federal territorial law, i.e. the insular cases and their progeny, how the U.S. treats its colonial possessions. So there's many areas of law for which the proposition is so clear. And that's why those areas, especially federal Indian law, it's such a useful area to teach. I love explaining U.S. federal Indian law because it's very, very, it does the job of like sort of peeling back the onion skin layers of what law is to show you that it's so wrapped up in other things like politics and values that undergird the growth of a society that becomes imperialist, for example. So those those things are useful, but even in the climate change debate and what happens now, I mean, we talk about the UN framework um, on climate change. We talk about what's going on globally. And when I find that I explain that, sort of that dynamic, you, you tease it out, like you comb hair, you know what I mean? Like you do that with, so, you, so that the people that you're talking to can really understand that it's different. And it's useful, I, let me make this very clear, because then they don't have to necessarily, they can choose for themselves. I think that's what really freedom looks like. They choose where to pour their political energy. They, they do, do, is it all about litigation? Is it all adjudication? Is it all, should we fight this in lawsuits? Because the climate change issue is going to, it's, I mean, it's skywriting by now. It's so obvious. Like there's impending doom and these people in these communities, so many communities need to figure out what they're going to do. Are, are they going to keep fighting? Are they going to sign contracts with third party states to try to be moved? I mean, are they going to be okay with being environmental refugees? So these are like really big questions. And I think it was uh, Professor Doug Kaiser. I think that's how you say his name. Mm-hmm. He asked a very mm-hmm. fascinating question that I think relates to your question here. He was asking uh, panel one on this environmental law conference we just had here about, okay, so in a way it's really cynical. It's, um, I mean, it's easy. Cynicism is, is easy when we talk about just how little progress is being made with regard to climate change. And it, it was specifically in the context of Palau's quest for an advisory opinion about third-party states and life ability for uh, greenhouse gas emissions, right? So that that's the enterprise, that's the project involved. But when you do this and you do it with strictly a legal vocabulary, if you only use that frame, it's really, really unhelpful because it sort of has a way of not igniting any sort of like anything else. I mean, if we all resign ourselves to the fact that th- this issue, for example, is just so big and so unassailable and the law international law on the matter i mean gosh i mean yes the panel the other day was so useful in elucidating just how much energy is being used to fight the the details of of trying to seek the advisory opinion i mean so much and a tremendous amount of energy is used and in like intellectual energy civil society energy lawyer legal energy a lot of energy is being used in to fight over the tiniest of details but i think professor kaiser actually was able to help the audience by bringing it back and sort of saying we need to maybe have a wider view and like and use words like morality and talk about people's right to exist so i mean i know that's an incredibly long answer to your question but i think it's for me anyway that's how i sort of 
conceptually break it down. I like break the law down and talk about what it is and what it isn't and what it can do and what it's possibly ill-equipped to do. And I think that really helps people. So therefore, at that moment, when they sort of drop the confusion about the law, then they're able to make choices for themselves, informed choices about how to, you know, what to wrap their arms around, what arguments to make. And I say, bring on the moral arguments. I mean, and, and not, you know, and, and bring on all the other arguments that have yet to be, you know, fashioned. Um, I think the climate change argument, I mean, issue is just so, so wonderful because, I mean, not as an issue, climate change is not wonderful. Rising sea levels are not wonderful, but it is a wonderful in invitation to start actually stretching. I mean, I think we need to stretch and we need to innovate. We need to become supple, imaginatively supple. We need to find some elasticity, you know, shake it off and figure out some new solutions. Like international lawyers have big tasks on their hands, for example. So fascinating new legal questions are if the Montevideo criterion of formal statehood, you know, territory, permanent population, capacity to govern and enter into relations with other countries, if that's always going to be the benchmark, what does that mean for countries that are almost readying themselves for extinction? People who will lose one of those elements, the territory itself. If you don't have a territory on which to be self-governing, from which to enter into relationships, legally speaking, with other countries, if you're missing that key ingredient that Montevideo criteria what are you going to do so 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 these are the kinds of questions that lawyers need to start asking but I also I'm just excited to see the way the conversation globally is going to evolve because I think the law is going to have to borrow the energies of poetry the energies of music the energies of literature because it's not going to have it on its own it doesn't have enough well that's a wonderful answer and a beautiful transition because I wanted to ask you about your latest book, What We Bury at Night, and the stories that inspired it. Hmm, yeah. Um, well, yeah, What We Bury at Night. Um, that was my third and last book that I wrote. Um, all of my books are sort of like little guerrilla books. They're really short. I, I wrote them um, in such short stints of time. I think I wrote What We Bury at Night in three weeks, and I did it in between classes at the beginning of my I think 2L year I, I can't even remember exactly right now but the law school um, I went to William S. Richardson School of Law UH mm -hmm. Manoa and they're an incredibly um, supportive institution in the beginning of my legal experience at law school they I won um, a human rights fellowship a Sam Cohen human rights fellowship and um, I said I wanted to take a photograph with words of the current legal and political landscape of the Micronesian islands. So they awarded me the fellowship, which was very nice. And I got to travel. I spent the whole summer traveling all the islands again, some for the first time, some, you know, I've been many times before, but I had traveled and I tried to do that. In my head, I was always trying to t use words, photograph kind of what's happening because you know, Micronesia is complicated. I mean, I talked a little bit of this about this earlier People just don't know how legally and politically complicated the landscape is, actually. With the founding of the UN at the end of World War II, you see, um, all of the Micronesian islands that I listed before, CNMI, FSM, RMI, and ROP, which is Palau, all of those entities, although now separately under rubrics, right, under these separately um, organized political entities, they were all once put together 
uh, and they were called the Trust Territory of the Pacific Islands. So they were governed under an entirely separate chapter, um, chapters 12 and 13 of the UN Charter. So these were called Trust Territories. They were allowed to uh, explicitly evolve toward outright independence. And so so the U.S. became the the sort of overseer of that process. So they, that process is very distinct from Guam's process as a non-self-governing territory, which was governed by another chapter of the UN Charter, which is Chapter 11. And so this, so, so the UN basically, right at the close of the World War II, they had a bifurcate treatment of the colonies. On the one hand, you have trust territories, um, which are colonies of the defeated Axis powers, and you have, on the other hand, you have non-self-governing territories, which were colonies of the victorious Western powers. So you can already conceptually imagine that there would be a bifurcate treatment of the colonies, depending on who was administering them. So um, while the U.S. Uh, was in charge of the trust territory of the Pacific Islands, so I um, just knowing that, knowing a lot of that history about everyone's like fiercely individual process, trying to get to become self-governing and ultimately independent. Um, and to become, for example, a UN member state, that whole process, I already knew that in a summer with a fellowship, I could not possibly try to get all that down. I mean, that was just, just way too ambitious um, and naive to think that I could do that. So instead, I just wanted to sort of feel my way around the region, <laughs> which is kind of laughable because it, it, it's it's hard to articulate, but I just wanted to travel around and get a sense of how things were, how self-governing these self-governing places were, and actually listen to people talk. I mean, I think what I learned in that summer was that there's a kind of seeing that's more a listening than a seeing. And I think that's what mm -hmm. I experienced when I was, I was just listening to the stories. For example, the title of the book, What We Bury at Night, comes from listening to stories from elder uh, Marshallese men and women about Marshallese women giving birth to babies, um, to that essentially they consider non-human offspring, babies that they call jellyfish babies, babies without bones, translucent skin, um, no eyeballs, uh, spines outside of their bodies as opposed to inside. I mean, so they took, they basically had to devise an entirely new language themselves just to deal to sort of call, to have a word and terms for these babies that weren't, were barely human. Um, and that's because, of course, the radioactive poison still coursing through their bodies. Um, as you know, we talked a little bit earlier, um, the U.S. between 1946 and 1958 dropped 67 atmospheric nuclear weapons on the people of the Marshall Islands. And, for example, on March 1st, 1954, it dropped one shot, brought the Bravo shot. And this was a 15 megaton de device. And so what they say now, the, the estimation that everyone uses is that the equivalent of these bombs were 1.6 or 1.7 Hiroshima bombs every day on these islands for 12 years. That's its total radioactive yield. So this is like just, I could have wrote an entire book just about the Marshalls, but the book was trying to take a photograph of all of the places. So, but I'm not surprised that the Marshallese chapter ended up being my longest one because the stories were just so compelling and so haunting. Um, and I think they, they should haunt the legal imagination because this was a time, all of this happened during a time when the U.S. was charged with, by the U.N. to be the administering power, to be, I mean, to be the overseer state, to guide these vulnerable colonial dependencies toward full self-government and outright independence. So obviously 
there's it, there's a lot going on there. But um, oh, sorry, back to the title of my book, What We Bury at Night. The reason why I titled that is because some of the stories were about how the woman would go out in the middle of the night and bury these babies because of shame, and they it they don't want to talk about it. I mean, this is something. How do you? It's almost like it's like being faced with the task of describing the indescribable. But they would bury these babies um, in the middle of the night so no one would see. So it would usually be the grandmother, the midwife, and the mother, and they would bury these babies. And so that's what I titled the book, What We Bury at Night, because I believe that we were in the regions, we're all out at night with our shovels, bearing something, bearing mm-hmm. our babies and bearing our blues, bearing our dreams and bearing our right to dream them, our right to dream dreams that actually have content that rad- it's radically different from imported versions of, you know, history, imported definitions of the beautiful. I mean, when I, what I concluded in the book when, as I was going was that what's actually the region of suffering more than diabetes, more than lytical bodic, more than Lou Gehrig's disease, more than nuclear contamination is the sort of death of dreaming. I mean, there is a chilling lack of imagination now because so many of these islands are so broken. And so I think you have, it it was like being in ruins in some ways for me. And as a writer, like, there's the things that I honed into aren't necessarily the things I honed into as a legal mind, as a legal scholar in training at the time. You know, these were stories, and and this is a great... um, sort of inroad into your earlier question like there is a certain there's a certain way that like law and legal language has a way of defeating you from the outset you don't I mean it it can't even begin to fashion the kind of arguments that you want to make for example legally I know we're supposed to stick to writing and not law but you see it's difficult for me it's actually very difficult for me not to live in both worlds at one time but legally speaking Every claim that has ever been bought, like brought against the United States for these crimes, what I would say, you know, are akin to crimes of humanity. These are international human rights. They sound in international human rights violations. They smack of this. But all claims to date have all been brought under the Tucker Act. They've been filed in the U.S. Court of Federal Claims, and they've been narrowly, mercilessly narrowly framed as breach of contract claims and property damage under the Fifth Amendment. So I just find that kind of lawyering really really troublesome because it guts the compelling core of the actual historic injustice and it doesn't match so the prayer for relief it's Mm -hmm. it barely feels like i mean that's not a prayer on the lips of the people themselves so well i can't wait to read it thank (laughs) Thank you. you so much for sharing your time and your words with us today thank you so much for having me